0: Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this panel on Sudan's Coup perspective from the ground. I'm delighted that my, my colleague, Nadine Al-Manasfi and Lawrence Radford and Imran Khan helped uh, to put this panel together. I think it's an amazing lineup of speakers. Um, I'm first going to kind of introduce the speakers and then I'm gonna go through some of the kind of uh, the schedule and some of the kind of rules for the panel. Um, so, first of all, we have Muzan Al Nil. She is a non-resident fellow at the Tariyeh Institute for Middle Eastern Policy, focusing on people-centric approach to the economy, industry, and environment in Sudan. She is a writer and a public speaker with an interdisciplinary professional and academic background. She's also the co-founder of the Innovation Science and Technology Think Tank for People-Centered Development in Sudan. And she's recently published a piece in Jacobin Magazine called The People of Sudan don't want to share power with their military aggressors, the link of which we're going to post in the chat in a moment. Uh, We also have Nafisa El-Tahri is a correspondent covering political and economic news uh, in Sudan as well as uh, in Egypt for Reuters News. Before her current posting, she reported on the Gulf out of Dubai and was a fellow fellow at the And finally, we have Majli Al-Jazuli, who is a scholar of the Sudans and a fellow of the Rift Valley Institute. He writes mostly on Sudan's affairs and he blogs on Still Sudan and is also on Twitter. I think everybody is on Twitter. Uh, So if the audience would like to ask a question, please type their question in the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen, not in the chat box. um, And then we're gonna address the questions to the speakers. I've got a bunch of questions myself, but I'm not going to hog the time if I see that there's a lot of questions there for the speakers. Uh, Please note that this event is being recorded and it's also being live streamed on Facebook. I think it's also going to be posted on YouTube as well, uh, so please be aware of that. And if anybody would like to tweet about the event, they can use the hashtag, uh, hashtag LSC Sudan. Um, this is a, an event that's organized both by the Afri- Africa Center, by the Middle East Center in, in LSE. So we're really happy to have sort of different groups of people joining us. Uh, so just to start us off, I first have a question for Nafisa, which is, I would want, like, like you to give a sense of who or what is behind this coup um, and what, what might be the best and worst case scenarios of how the current political situation might evolve.
1: Okay, Um. thank you for the question. And thank you for having me and all of us uh, here. I hope it's a good discussion and useful for people. Um, so, I mean, long story short, right, the military on October twenty fifth took over power ended a partnership in what people call like in what we call as journalists, a military coup. But I think it's useful to kind of take a longer view of what's been going on in Sudan. Um, so we had a transitional partnership that was created. After the economy began spiraling, there was an extensive political movement, a loss of international support for the Bashir regime, um, and then a military uh, coup taking with his lower the generals, his generals taking power from him. Right. So that's what happened. And then it took four months after that for us to create this traditional partnership. Um, and it took a lot of protests. It took a lot of bloodshed to achieve a partnership between political elites and. Uh, the military and in that partnership they left a lot of key issues of accountability whether that be for deaths during the protest movement um, crimes before or alleged crimes before um, under Bashir Um, issues of governance especially oversight over the military restructuring of the military um, oversight over state-owned enterprises um, removal of the former regime and issues of peace and and coming to peace agreements, all of these issues were left on the table to be dealt with over this supposedly three year transitional period leading to elections. Um, And it was done without any clear pathways for most of these issues and without any compromises kind of set out, so all of these things were kind of put as a list that's kind of persisted until now as a list of things that had to be dealt with during this transition. Um, and so without getting into kind of all the political developments in the last two years, which I think some of um, we can kind of get into later and some other people might have um, some things to say about, a lot of these issues that were am talking about, about accountability and governance, they kind of started, they were always there during the transition. They started kind of coming a bit more to the forefront again over the summer. And on September 21st, um, and there were kind of issues, you know, people, Hamdok was starting to bring them up again. Some political parties were starting, they were kind of bubbling. And the international community was also kind of, bringing these issues up again. And on September 21st, the military reported there was a coup attempt, which has happened several times over the past uh, two years, as it's happened many times over Sudan's um, history. But typically or, under the transition, it's been a force to unify. So a coup will happen, and the military and the civilian government or civilian cabinet will kind of issue statements of support for each other, talking about like a unique partnership that they share, and that they have to protect it against these external forces. But after the September 21st attempt, the opposite happened, right? So you started to get a renewed emphasis from the civilians immediately after the coup attempt, hours after, kind of talking about um, the need for the military to be restructured, the need for civilian oversight, and the military in exchange started um, criticizing the political parties, criticizing the civilian government um, largely for economic, the economic crisis, and criticizing them for infighting, neglecting other elements of the country outside of Khartoum, and then we started to see pressure from the East with the port closure, we started to see that a lot of rebel groups and smaller political parties were echoing the military's rhetoric, so things were built up. I'm, this is kind of a long history but because I think it's an event that deserves to be analyzed kind of given everything that's happened. It's not quite like a singular event of like a singular rebellion, it's buildup, right? Um, and so, you, ha- like I said, you have the dynamics in the East, you have the rebel groups and small parties, you have internal dynamics within the military, within the rapid support forces, within the other elements of the security apparatus, and between them as well, that's all kind of also happening. And there's consultations and, and input from America, from the Gulf, from Egypt, from all of these foreign powers, so all of this was happening in that month. Um, and a lot of it, not all of it, in, within, in, with an attempt to quiet down tensions. But from the start, the civilians accused the military of plotting a coup. On October 25th, a lot of those same politicians were put in jail um, in the middle of the night or early morning. And um, the military took over. They dissolved the partnership. They excised the, the political coalition from the constitution of the country. They began a process of replacing the civilian um, politicians and technocrats with people who had affiliations with the former regime, um, which is a coup. So that's kind of that's what happened. Um, in terms of best and worst case scenarios, as a journalist, I can't really say what should or shouldn't happen right I have to say what is happening, what could happen. Um, I think we'll get into kind of different people's goals and what their best and worst case scenarios and maybe a little bit later with some of the other questions but the best case scenario is that some sort of, you know, agreement is reached of that everyone is all of a sudden somewhat. I mean, it's not everyone could be possibly be happy, but the idea is that there has to be a kind of a delineation of roles and responsibilities and consequences that some form of majority kind of accept. Um, and that's held on to elections and that, you know, elections in an atmosphere that actually allows a free and fair election. And then that's the best case scenario. It's probably also a fantasy scenario, right? Which is why it's hard to even like really describe it. The worst case scenario is that we have what we have A continuation of what we have now, which is that there's no agreement. There's no no one is on board with anything, except for maybe a very small group of people. Um, We have no government. We haven't had a government for six weeks in terms of a cabinet. Um, Sudan has already lost a huge raft of foreign funding that's been promised after very painful reforms. So we kind of have a situation where people have gone through very painful reforms, and the moment that you know we were starting to supposed to supposedly see some of the benefits of that, that's been cut off and is, is kind of, there's no really timeline in sight for that to come back. Um, we also have a situation where there's multiple security services, multiple armed groups under different leaderships who right now have remained aligned and kind of are not fighting each other, but that can easily change. Um, we already, you know, we've seen an uptick in violence in Darfur over the last year and um, over the past few weeks, we've also seen an uptick um, and, and that's liable to continue into. Back. And the last thing I want to say on this, I know I've kind of gone on for a while, is that Hamdok's return to power or to, to office, not to power, to office, is animated by a lot of these issues that I'm talking about, a lot of these best case scenario, worst case scenario issues that I'm talking about. Um, and sources close to him say that he's looking, you know, to get this agreement that they signed on November 21st actually completed, and he's also looking for popular support to stay in office. Neither of those things are really, have really manifested themselves. Um, and so otherwise, kind of again, in terms of scenarios, the military may choose if Hamidok decides he can't, he hasn't, these conditions aren't fulfilled, that they may choose to appoint a new government, um, as they kind of had said that they already wanted to in the days following the coup. And again, a lot of these issues of violence and economic support would be definitely up in the air because yeah, so of
0: that.
1: I'm done. Sorry. Okay.
0: Thank you. That was very uh, comprehensive helpful. Question, uh, answer in terms of the longer history. Um, and to pick up on something you said about Hamduk wanting popular support, I want to now uh, t- talk a little bit about the Neighbourhood Resistance Committee and bring in Majdi. Um, both you and Muzan have written about the Neighbourhood Resistance Committees and I've either heard or read uh, your thoughts also about new political structures in rural Sudan as well. So I hope you could provide a bit of background about how you think the Ingas regime Transformed what we might call the kind of political infrastructure of Sudan, both in rural and urban areas over the course of their regime. So, how did how did policy change under the former regime in Sudan? And you're on mute, Majesty. Oh,
2: <laughs> well, that's a that's a very good question, and um, uh, I appreciate that you asked it. And there's no, I I don't have an easy, straightforward answer to it. But I think from um, a lot of um, work that I've done, some of it myself and some of it that was done by Eddie Thomas and others, and some of it jointly with Eddie, we've come up with some sort of idea around how that happened over time. And I think it's something that has been going on probably already at the beginning, somewhere in the sixties, with undermining the authority of the, sort of the established, the two established, political networks in Sudan. Um, so at independence, Sudan had two, these two major political networks, at least Central Sudan had these two major political networks. Everybody else was not part of the political community anyway. So the Southern Sudanese, the Nuba, were not part of what is, the, what is the world of politics. The world of politics was dominated by these two networks. And the major function of these two networks, and I mean the, the, the Umma Party and the Democratic Unionist Party, was to bridge this gap between rural and urban Sudan, between sites of accumulation and sites of expropriation. And the, this gap was bridged through an alliance between patrician leaders, major figures like Sayyid al and Sayyid Ali, who sat at the head of a, of a sort of quite detailed and, and, and really well-organized network of merchants and businessmen and religious authorities and that linked into rural sudan through through the native administration which is a, one of those lovely british inventions that don't go away like the inch and the i don't know things that you don't need anymore but they just don't go away and i think that's the problem with the native administration it just doesn't want to go away and um, and because it has a function in the way rural production works because it it has it serves this role and for a long time these it was p- possible to rule Uh, to govern rural Sudan through these means, at least until the sort of, until the, the emergence of what after October 1964 was named regional movements. But you can see, you can already see some of that in 1958. I mean, the BJ Congress dates back to 58, the first stirrings of that. There were already political voices saying, oh, this doesn't work in Darfur in the, under the sun organization. In the Nuba Mountains, you had the union of the Nuba Mountains from sort of the mid-50s. And some of these people tried the parliamentary route to political engagement. Philip Abbas Bush and others who attempted to become part of this political community that was, fun- you know, rotated around these two networks of power. And I think at one time it began also not paying off to do extraction by, by, um, by, uh, by ideological means only, by recruitment of power through religion. You needed more money, which meant you needed to make people work harder for less money. And then came the role, the role of, of, of coercion. And you can see something like Um, Keen has written a wonderful book about the the famine of 1985 in uh, southwestern Sudan, um, uh, which was the the famine of Bahra al-Ghazal, as a consequence of the continuous raiding of militia forces uh, across the north-south border. And uh, the militia was then used as a way to push people into markets and also to scavenge surplus. Even when it seems quite minimal, like a few cows, but you can turn them into many. And um, it was a way of expropriating large, large, uh, large populations at, at the border, at least. So violence became, in a way, cheaper than, than consent. So it became cheaper to, to kill people than to convince them. Through ideological means, that you, that this is the way things should look like. Especially when they began to have opinions by their own, <laughs> and were not particularly convinced with the with the running arguments. So it, it meant that the, this whole system began militarizing. The Sudanese military from the very beginning was was in no position to control this vast geography, neither in number, nor in armament, nor in abilities, and it. Even under the British, they, this idea that you could outsource violence to rural militias took um, was sort of on display. At least in the Nuba Mountains, already the British had outsourced some of their some of their you know exercises in pacification to 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 uh, to friendly militias. But I think the main achievement of al Inqaz and uh, of Omar al-Bashir, and I think this goes under his. I mean, and, his, and he gave it a trade name. Is this, is this invention of the rural militia not only as a way of as a sidekick to the army, but as a way of governing the countryside, where the militia becomes the tool of governance, not anymore the native administration or 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 some, some rural sheikhs or heads of heads of communities, but the militia governing more or less directly. And that's Essentially, what the rapid support forces and the General Hameti do today. They are, they do governance. It's not, I think it's it's a bit misleading to limit them to some sort of violent functions. They they do more than that. They they you can read every day if you follow their media campaigns. You can read their um their vaccination campaigns, their water supply campaigns, their extension campaigns in the countryside. And they've already, they have already established a bank of their own, um, uh, the Bank of Production it's named, and it's already entering into partnerships with, um, with um, Sesame, Sesame producers in Kurdistan and Darfur. They know very well where surplus comes from and where a bit of extra bucks are to be made. And um, they've bought up one bank at least, and they are partners with, a, with, a, with the generous funders from, from the UAE in a third bank. So this is, this is a way of governance. This is not anymore just a, a militia. And I think state power is for them today a necessity. So it's not like um, like 15 years ago when, or 10 years ago when, all right, it might be useful to become part of the state. Now they have to be part of the state. The level of, the level of interest and the level of involvement and the way that they are making money and, and, uh, and creating power systems demands that you take over the state. And I think in many ways, um, the coup of 25th October is also a turning point in the sense that um, it might be the case that Bashir's coup is the last coup that the army can do alone. There's a, a very interesting aspect of the 25th October coup. is It's the first coup that the Sudanese army doesn't carry out alone. It needed It needed to buy into this militia. The militia entered this coup as a partner, not as a... As a, as a some sort of a, a secondary ally, as a side system, they were equal partners in the in the coup in many ways, and the, and 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 it would be interesting to see how how that relationship will eventually evolve. Now, your question was about the resistance committees, and I think that's the world of surprises because uh, as damning as all this sounds, because this is sort of the language of sort of 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 historical diction and historical constraints in the absence of ways to to resist this, people invent new ways and i think the story i like telling all the time is that if you grew up in sudan 70s what were your roots to politics you would either have to join one of the two tariqas and enter the Ummah or the dup or you you wait to get an education if you ever get an education and then. You enter university, assuming that you did get a, a ticket to university, and then you had two—one of two options. You either became an Islamist; the most probably you'll do that if you come from a conservative background, or you you might turn communist if some, somebody tells you a nice poem or something. So it's it's a it's the 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 roots to politicization were quite constrained. And I think the major achievement of, of December 1819 is this: the invention of this resistance committee. I mean, they date back to 2013 in evolution, but in true form, they emerged in the 1819 period and, and sort of evolved since, which became a way of entering politics for thousands of people without taking the usual roads through the two big patrician parties or the the more established intellectual circle parties of the university. So there was a way to politics that did not go through the mosque and did not go through campus, which is quite the new thing. And, And the novelty of this should never be underestimated. And I think irrespective of what the outcome of this immediate cycle of conflict is, the the roots that have been laid by this this formula of politics will will be long lasting. This is a truly historic invention, in the same way that the trade union of the nineteen fifties was a historic contribution. It it will change politics for a long time. Now, the constraint is it remains largely an urban phenomena. It is attractive for rural peoples and they play with it. You can see that in places like Nirtiti, like the the the, the labor camps of the Jazeera. You can see it in, in sort of far-off villages where people play with the idea, but or young men and women sort of try it out, and they're trying it out. Just like you try in the striped chalabi of the 70s. know, you're trying it out because it's the fashion in Khartoum. People do resistance committees, so let's do one. And then they do one, and then they try to do something with it, a, a sit-in, a, a, protest, a protest march. In some cases, that are quite um, inspiring. People use the fo- this form because it became a form of challenging power to negotiate relations with big companies or with investors. And, and which means that it's also a way of politics that is unlike campus politics that you can use for everyday, for everyday objectives. You know, what, is, what uses campus politics? You can, write, uh, you can write in the newspaper, maybe. You can talk to your friends and you can have very long discussions and heated debates. Um, that's campus politics. But this is politics for everyday use. So the resistance committee is something you could use in every your everyday life, you you protest, you take a march to the next um, locality, you negotiate with the with the company over um, rents for land taken by a firm, you could use it to boycott a certain product. So it's it's useful. It's something that you can you, you can do politics with at an everyday level. And I think that is an element that has been very much missing in what we refer to at and what people in my age refer to as politics because we always thought of politics as the action of writing something that's why most of it is works through most of it works through through these statements these famous statements you know these pronouncements and statements and 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 sort of the analysis and our position, what we think, uh, whatever. It's its all related, it's, a, it's sort of an ex- a mental exercise. It's like a long mental exercise. But I think the Resistance Committee offers this cohort of people who are entering politics now, and they're really sort of shoulder to shoulder into politics. There's a hunger for it. And they—they uh, it's offering them something much more practical and useful. It might be crushed by security means, that might happen. One should never underestimate, under, I think so, because maybe, I'm, I don't know. I think so. You shouldn't underestimate the enemy. Never. That's a big mistake. So it might be crushed at the moment, So sort of this movement at, at, at right now. It might not achieve all what it wants to achieve, but the what it has started is very hard to rub off. Because you learn, it's like learning how to ride a bike or learning, you know, but once you, once you know how to do it, you will do it each and every time and you'll do it better. So you, you will be even more capable of doing it. And I think it, this is already apparent in the way that the resistance committees took back immediately to the streets. It was quite inspiring that they did, there was no, they didn't really, they did no 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 hesitation at all their diagnosis of what happened on 25th October was immediately clear. There was absolutely no hesitancy in what this was about. And, <laughs> and the, the, the way to respond to it is to occupy the street. And it was an, a correct and uh, a clear and, and, and unapologetic response to uh, one of those cartoon games that work through statements. So I've already talked to like, I think I'll stop here, thanks.
0: Okay, thank you, Majdi. Um, So I wanted to bring Wazan Wazan in on end of this question to talk about um, how strategic have different actors been of the kinds of transformations that Majdi was talking about, both the kind of transformations in rural areas in terms of the militias, but perhaps also and this is maybe more in line with your, your work and your activism with the neighborhood resistance committees. So, how strategic have different actors been in either engaging with these groups kind of positively or kind of co-opting them or trying to use them for their own political objectives?
3: Um, well, thank you. And um, um maybe my answer is going to be a bit long, but I think some clarifications are due at the beginning. Um, I believe we must. Uh, clarify that strategically responding to popular demands does not by default equate delivering on popular interests that that is clear. So uh, the transitional government in all its components and the political club in general, they did try to respond to popular demands strategically. Uh, We find evidence of that all over the transitional period. Um, Even if we start from the end, we find that the coup leaders, um, as Nafisa explained, they had a lot of speeches in the last days before the coup. And in these uh, speeches, they relied on popular discontent due to the increased level of poverty in the country. Um, And and that was um, what, the country has experienced under the economic liberalization of Hamdok's governments. And the coup leaders used this in their last public speeches before the coup as an evidence that the government has failed. Um, And a change must be forced then since since that's the situation. Um, However, we must also clarify that in his first press conference after the coup, Al-Burhan praised those economic liberalization policies and committed to go on uh, with their implementation, um, which indicates clearly no interest in delivering on the requirements of the interest um, of the majority of the population. Uh, We saw that also. Prior to that, in how the cabinet um, and the uh, Handok's government, and also its international donors, tried to manufacture popular support. Uh, for the uh, desubsidization of basic goods. Um, Basically, via messaging that, different types of messaging, some of it was uh, to put rural versus urban, make it a rural versus urban issues, and that the cities are getting more out of this setup, and the rural areas, um, uh, for them, it's only fair to cancel the subsidization situation. And um, I don't think I need to spend much time in explaining how, um, as you can expect, uh, this this messaging ignored uh, the overall picture of spending priorities, Ignored the spending on the military and militias. It ignored the, the flows in the fiscal federalization system in place. It ignored how these flows are used to channel funds to state-based uh, to different states based on political priorities and interests um, of the federal government um, and, and its power. And of course, they also ignored the logical results uh, of the subsidization of bread and fuel um, on a population of like over 60% of which is under poverty line uh, and with zero control of prices uh, of goods. So here again, the approach was to manufacture messaging based on issues with popular support to deliver against the popular interest. Um, One of the clearest examples of the government's popular messaging for counter-revolutionary goals, uh, in my opinion, has to be uh, the committee to dismantle the June 30th regime and retrieve public funds. Um, The the theatrical press conferences of this uh, committee, which were festivals of of fake wins, uh, wins against the previous regime. we basically used to tame the public opinion and demand. Um, it got to a point where, uh, whenever there was a new scandal about the transitional government, and believe me, there were many. So the new social media will uh, will start seeing on it uh, posts repeating and rephrasing in a running joke that oh, I guess we're going to see a committee press conference tonight. Um, and uh, in a good number of cases, honestly, the joke became reality. The, the committee actually had a press conference to 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 cover the the scandal or the new leak. Um, the, the committee was used as a tool to convince the public that redistribution of wealth can be a bureaucratic process, and that they can, uh, just as technocrats and lawyers, they, we can just rely on them and stay at home. Um, it was also used as a um, um, to, as a tool to undermine many labor groups and unions, and even dismantle some of them under the justification that its members belong to the regime. For, so again, it was another case of manufacturing messaging based on issues with popular support, actual popular support, but. To deliver against the popular interests. Um, Now, actually, to serve the interests of the majority of the Sudanese population, um, 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 the the policies necessary um, are under the the composition of the previous and the current government. It was not possible, basically, um, due to the national and foreign policy choices of the government as well. Um, The 2019 deal, um, as well as the November deal, it was based on a float concept that a deal between existing leadership or existing elites uh, can create stability without addressing the injustices that caused the popular uprising and stability to start with. Um, addressing these injustices uh, required redistribution of wealth, um, um, rethinking the spending priorities, which means a totally new approach towards the security forces, um, a, a totally new approach towards national natural resource management, a new structure of land tenure and labor and landowner relations in rural areas. And and these are changes that um, challenge and, to some extent, can end uh, the authority of military leaders, as well as the, uh, the secretarian leaders that, uh, that makes the, um, explain their, their position in Sudanese politics, um, So, um, as well as the business owners as, uh, and uh, the top of the bourgeoisie political parties um, of the opposition, who, who were also a partner in the government. So basically, it was a government that was formed of components whose interests contradict with the majority with those of the majority of Sudanese population. Um, and with no tools of oversight or participation in the political decision. And um, those who supported um, and still support actually this setup, they insist on ignoring that as long as the economic injustices continue, um, uh, military uh, oppression and militias need to continue to sustain it, first of all, and um, uh, thereby um, a sustainable stability and peace cannot be achieved. Um, And it's not that they do not understand this, uh, but as I said earlier, um, national and international parties who were in support of this setup, can only exist in in this criminal model. Um, So by default, they prioritize their interest um, and the interest in their existence and their exponential growth over the sustainable peace and stability. And um, that was was basically the position of the government towards uh, uh, popular demands, that they were utilized in in messaging to pass um, uh, legislations or decisions that definitely do not serve uh, the public in any way.
0: Thank you very much. I'm going to start using some of the questions from the QA um, because I don't want to take too much time with my own questions. So, if you have questions, please put them in the QA. Otherwise, I'll pull some of the, of the questions before. So, one of the first questions is from Ahmed Al 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 I think. Um, and he says uh, to Muzan, could you give us specific and detailed update on the grass- grassroots resistance committee structural building efforts? Are they counting people within the neighborhoods? How advanced are they in this effort? Which resistance committee groups are in the lead on this? And do they have international help help providing logistical support in this campaign or effort? So Mazan, can you, can you respond to that? And I'm, I'm going to ask you guys to be a bit shorter so we can make sure we have time for everybody. Thanks.
3: Sure, I'll try to answer briefly. So uh, different resistance committees are um, in, in different, they're taking different approaches and they are on different levels of, um, of building their structures. We are seeing resistance committees that are uh, counting the, the members of uh, their their neighborhoods. We are seeing resistance uh, committees that are starting to create uh, coordinating bodies. So basically, um, different uh, neighborhood committees coming together to create a coordinating uh, body at the level of the city and then at the level of the state. Uh, we are yet to see coordination on, um, at the level of the country between different states. Uh, but there are also, for example, um, an, um, an experiment uh, that started um, officially was launched this week in sinnar where resistance committees and labor unions uh, put out a declaration and a roadmap and a structure that includes both bodies. That that is rather new. We haven't we haven't seen that before, um, and at least not to my knowledge. Um, and and a roadmap that includes also. Um, a system for selecting representatives to assume the power of the the state level the subnational legislative body um so you can see that there are different experiments uh taking place um and um uh, the, i believe this is normal given the situation and given the the the, the fast the, the acceleration in their in their in their uh, evolution that is taking place since uh since the coup as for um uh, there, um, whether they there are international uh, contributions uh, or so on. on, on you can see that on individual levels. As and you will see at the page of some resistance committee sharing an article from from somebody outside uh, Sudan. It seems like they are in discussion uh, with them, appreciating some sort of um, um, uh, uh, solidarity event with Sudan and so on. Um, uh, better links that that actually um, include. Um joint work is something that we are ne- yeah, yet to see. Um, uh, but as I said, um, different committees are in different places.
0: Okay, thank you for that. So we have a couple of questions about uh, the economy. Um, so I might ask, ask Majdi sponsor these. So one question is about Hamduk's performance in the past two years with regards to the economy. And then we have a question about Given that subsidies were fueling inflation through the monetization of the public deficit, how can the economic situation improve without their removal? So I don't know if you want a bit of time to, to think about those, and I should ask Nafisa one of the questions I had before. So you are mute.
2: No, you should definitely give me a lot of time to think about those.
0: Okay. <laughs> So I'm going to ask Nafisa the question I had about this kind of dissonance that we kind of see between seeing on the television that there is this agreement achieved with Hamdok and the military. And meanwhile, people are on the streets protesting, uh, not accepting this agreement as legitimate, not necessarily seeing Hamdok's political survival as one of their demands. And whether you think journalists have done a good job at kind of carrying this kind of dissonance, um, whether you see any variation in the coverage between, for example, domestic Sudanese journalists versus international journalists in kind of capturing this kind of disconnect between the kind of elite level bargaining and the more kind of street level politics.
1: Um, okay, I'm not a media critic, so I'm not going to go too deep into kind of criticizing other people's coverage. But I think I'll try to kind of speak from what I observe and and also how it's been reporting for me, right? And I think one thing that's really important to say is that kind of how Middi was saying that the resistance committees very quickly came out um, rejecting the coup and very quickly came out rejecting the deal with Hamdok they their strategy and the and the way that they're organized makes it so that in any story that we do at least that that mentions kind of any of these developments, very quickly as we're updating throughout the day, it becomes a story about the protest against that, right? So very quickly a story that maybe, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning was military leads a coup or the military has a with Kamduk. By six or seven p.m. at least the way that we work, we're kind of constantly updating. If the story very quickly becomes, people are in the street rejecting an agreement with Hamdok, or people on the street rejecting, with that's just the nature of this protest movement in a way that it maybe is, doesn't apply to a lot of others, right, and where it's kind of a bit of a slower um, push, right, and even I think even earlier in the protest movement in Sudan, it was a more gradual, um, more kind of a planned approach, whereas now the resistance committees are organized in a way in which, and not just organized, but I think trained, but I don't mean in a formal sense, I mean kind of in a, in a practice sense of something like this happens, it's a very quick um, response to go to the street, right, so that impacts the political coverage because the story becomes the protest. Um, the story both both both, when we're kind of following as people who as a newswire who's following kind of consistently throughout the day, and if you look on the, uh, like the television, which is honestly how most people, you know, still get their news. Um, and social media, the story becomes very quickly the protest. It's not the agreement, and so it becomes very impossible to talk about anything that's happening without discussing the fact that there's a protest movement against whatever other um, political development is happening, right? Um, and like I said, that's definitely that's that that's due to the way that the protest movement is organized, um, consciously or unconsciously. Um, and because of that, I think again, again, at least the way that we're approaching and the way I see it, international people approaching less than before there's less of a kind of horse race you know trying to cover the minutia of like what's happening with the agreement who's saying what to who and i think i've noticed this in the local press too although i think the local press by by virtue of being local press and being closer to the to what's happening will cover these kinds of smaller incremental changes and 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 smaller incremental you know leaks and and um which is a huge thing these days like everyone's leaking you know, all of these things—they will cover it more, and more because if they're closer to the issue, right? There, it's in their interest to cover every single element, and it's because they want to inform people, or because they want to influence, depending on the news source, because they want to influence things in a certain way. Um, but I'll keep it there. But just the idea that I think that the dissonance is 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 much less than it would have been maybe in 20, 2019 There's much more of a focus on the popular response.
0: Okay, thank you for that. So I'm going to return to Majdi. I hope you have somewhat of an answer ready for the, these questions on the economy.
2: Well, I mean, I, I, I think <laughs> I'm, I've am i heard that question many, many times. And I think the, the best response to it is that you need to contemplate that most, the richest countries on the world, um, a lot of them, including the UK, Germany, France, the US, subsidize food. Food subsidies are only a no-go for poor countries. For rich countries, that's the standard. So this, this law, this iron law that you can't subsidize food is applied only to the poorest of nations. The second element of the misunderstanding around that question is to say that the subsidies fueled inflation. Yes, that's very true because during a period of time where Bashir was not able to satisfy his, um, to satisfy the wheat demands of the city, he had to print money, and 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 this increased inflation. Bashir's inflation was at around two hundred plus when he came down. Today, the inflation rate in Sudan is almost four hundred. That's like ten times the rate in Yemen. It's around three times the rate in Lebanon. And Yemen is Yemen. I mean, I don't need to explain what Yemen is. So I think these indicators by themselves, if you use only those as a handle to understand food, which is my priority in all of this. Now, the latest report by the Food, um, the Famine Warning Network says that Sudan has, the highest level of hunger in Sudan is to be expected in this year and next year, um, compared to the last 40 years of record-taking, which means a situation of hunger in plenty, because Sudan is producing quite a lot of food, but it's producing it in a way and at a price, that, and it's it works in a way that people can't afford to buy it. And in this, I mean the staple foods of the countryside, the, the zura and the, the sorghum and the millet. The hunger in the city, began to increase in the late years of Bashir, when he wasn't, he he, he sort of 2017, 18, he wasn't able to keep the the wheat subsidy going well enough to maintain to keep people satisfied in food terms. And now, if you look at the graphs, you will see increasing hunger in the city, including in a place like Khartoum. Now, the priorities of government spending under whatever banner that may come, in my mind, in such a situation, should be to address the food crisis in the country, which means subsidizing food, making food available, and making it at, available at a price that will keep people from uh, levels of uh, crisis. And levels of crisis already happens when you have to sell your bicycle, or you have to sell your dog, or you have to sort of, uh, take the kid out of school in order to be able to eat. So when you're taking children out of school because you want to eat, then that's crisis level. And um, the the iron rule only applies to places like Sudan. The iron rule of that you cannot subsidize food. And the entire sort of dogmatic IMF World Bank language around it only works in poor countries. And this in itself should make you a bit suspicious about classical economics. And this language and the argument that, that, that stands behind it is the argument of classical economics, is that this will create a payment problem that we can't cover. But the, the the political, economic, social problem behind it is not addressed. One way that the subsidy system fueled Corruption fueled inflation in Sudan. Is that it was terribly corrupt. It was clustered around these two, these two commodities, around wheat and around and around fuels, and around both these commodities. Bashir created a system of multiple um, exchange exchange rates, and these exchange rates were were offered in ways that were very very biased, and some of this is partially you can recognize it in your own work on the health edu- on on education in sudan it all worked through the wasta system so somebody could access cheap dollars to import not fuel not wheat but anything else and it would give him a great advantage in the market and so the merchants clustered around these two around these two um, commodities in order to access these cheap dollars And some of Sudan's biggest businessmen made, I I mean, I I don't need to name names, but they just made a claim on the big telecommunication company recently. And they made most of their wealth from these cheap dollars. And the cheap dollars is what was fueling inflation. So it's the way you're running the market is that what creates that inflationary effect. And Mm -hmm. if the choice is between subsidizing food or not subsidizing food, I'm afraid I think you would need to subsidize food if you want to keep people from crisis levels of hunger.
0: Yeah. That's a long answer
2: to this question.
0: Yeah, I think that your answer does this other question I had about choicelessness that Tandika Makandawire talked about, how structural adjustment kind of made democracy kind of meaningless if all of the decisions are being made upstream and constraining the ability. And I think that the case of sudan where you have these protests going on and the fact that the, the kind of elite political class can't you know that it's not just that they don't want to do certain policies or you can kind of talk about the way that expert knowledge has changed in sudan and the kind of structure supporting expert knowledge but, but they're tired in all sorts of ways that it's difficult to kind of actually um, tackle the kind of political problems behind these things, because that's not the logic in which they're being understood, right? They're being, being understood as kind of classical paradigm. So I think it's a very kind of interesting and disturbing case of the kind of disconnect between Kind of knowledge of the economy versus the kind of political reality and and why certain kinds of processes are happening and understanding the history of them. Anyways, I'm now talking too much. Uh, So I want to ask another question from the audience, which is from Ida. Um, And she said, what can be the status of transitional period ministers some Bashir people have been reinstated in the government, should we expect further reinstatement over the next few months. And I'm wondering if I can bring in Muzan for this question, would you be comfortable answering that question.
3: Um, Yeah, sure. Well, what we're seeing right now is that it seems that the transitional government is trying to get um, some any kind of uh, political base to to support it or basically the, the government, uh, the coup government that was created out of of the latest deal. Um, they do seem rather desperate um, and limited to uh, basically the supporters of the previous regime, as well as um, um uh, um military loyalists and so on um and it's um they they were attempts by by the transitional government and it seems that they are still continuing to 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 bring in um you know national figures um and um, and um uh, yeah technocrats and, and so on and, and um it seems that the 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 huge reject by the by the public being so clear um, made some people just a bit worried about joining the the government uh, publicly we're seeing that that even uh, meetings with the with the cool government uh, um, it seems that no one wants to say that, that they met we just see uh, you know a committee met or um you know but no names uh out there uh so um uh, in addition, you also have that with the, the interests of those who are remaining in power. Um, from one side it, it's um, it's most aligned with the, with some of. Uh, uh, those who benefited from the the Bashir regime, and this is not different than b- b- prior to the coup. Um, I, we had several scandals um, of uh, members of um, uh, of the FFC, or members uh, of the cabinets or of the state governments who have been um, uh, suggested and recommended or chosen by by FFC parties. Um, sh- we find their history that they had uh, previous relations with the with the with the previous regime. Or worked with it, or even some of them being members of of the of Bashir's uh, party. Um, so. Um... It's it's not new that they have shared interests and and this is not exactly very new. Honestly, very little is new about the 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 post November twenty first government. Other in ter- than in terms of who are the names of those involved, interest approach, tools are very similar in a way that sometimes it's funny to see uh, the parties in um, very. Um, Excited about criticizing the new setup um, as much as they were excited to support the previous setup, and uh, w- I don't see the difference. Maybe other than um, their allies not being
0: mentioned the name in the new alliances. Okay, thank you for that. So I, I see three other questions, and I'm going to sort of ask them all, and then ask the three participants if they can respond, respond to which one they want, and to keep it kind of short to three minutes because we are running out of time. So first question, I'm just going to take the second half of Jake's question about the kind of he says, is the resurgence of intercommunal violence in Darfur, hugely worrying for the humanitarian community, somewhat opportunistic, while political angling is centered in Khartoum, and then there is a question that is for Majdi about uh, militia elements. Uh, in rural areas, establishing their own banks? Do you know what extent are they involved Involved in state companies active in key sectors such as minerals and mining? And the last question um, is about, I guess, given that there's always protests, How can a move towards pragmatic coalition coalition to take Sudan forward in the medium term? So I might start with Nafisa and then I'll go to Majdi and then I'll go to Mazan. So if you could try to answer in three minutes and you can pick whichever question you want.
1: Um, I can talk a little bit about Darfur, Um, something that we were reporting on a little bit today, actually. Um, I would, the use of the word opportunistic, I think, is maybe not exactly the right word I would use. Um, but I think that the idea that because all of the political wrangling, as you said, is centered in Khartoum, that things can happen outside of Khartoum that get kind of largely ignored, or dynamics can develop that get ignored until they kind of blow up, that's very true. And that I think happens quite often in Sudan. Um, what's happening in that for is a combination of a lot of elements. Um, maybe kind of covered, I think, a big part of it, which is which is the militarization of the region. There's also the um, peace agreement, which is kind of very much this idea of like kind of, you know, it's it's achieved things in the center where some of these rebel groups feel that they now have representation in Khartoum and has achieved very little in Darfur, right? Very little has changed in Darfur. And things have actually gotten worse in the last year. The last year saw um, the highest highest increase in violence since kind of the conflict there was officially over. Um, the number of displaced people has gone up four times in 2021 over 2020. And a lot of that has to do with the peace deal with which attra- addressed the concerns of some groups, but not all, and has kind of put forth this idea that, okay, if you want to have your, your issues addressed, you have to um, raise arms and you have to cause noise because that seems to be the only people that got listened to were, were some of the people who, who, who did something, who, did, who, who took up arms. Um, so I think that's a big part of it there's also you know the military kind of says this but there is there is truth to it that the elite fortune do neglect the areas outside of Fort there has been like there was a certain amount of there has and continues to be a certain amount of neglect i don't think that the military necessarily does a better job of of, of 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 taking care of the you know actually solving issues for the people in that otherwise but um yeah, I hope that kind of quickly kind of answers the idea that it's it's not the opportunism, but it is kind of the neglect is definitely there, and the dynamics that are that are being developed there haven't been aren't
0: being addressed by what's happening in Kabul. Thank you, Nafisa. So, Majesty, would you take on this question maybe about the militias having their own banks?
2: I mean, that's yeah, it's just they do; they have their own banks, and. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't make that distinction, you know, there's this distinction, because the question assumes that there's something called the militia and there's something called the state, they're fusing. The the the, 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 the militia bank might not be a state owned bank, but in terms of function, it operates like it operates with the authority of the militia. And that's the important thing to consider if you if you're taking a letter that is addressed with the title Bank al Khalid. You can probably enter any government um, government office without many questions asked because you're coming from the right place. And um, So the, the, these companies that are associated with the militia or they're owned by the militia and the RSF might not be government-owned companies but they operate like government-owned companies. They have the similar status and they would have um, influence in, in, they would use that political capital in to, to, to consolidate their position in the market. That's why the RSF can do, the RSF doesn't need the license from the Ministry of Health to do a vaccination campaign, it just does it. Neither does it seek a license from the Ministry of Agriculture to do agricultural extension, it just does it. It operates like a government. So I think that distinction is not very helpful. Because the, the assumption of that distinction is that you want to say, how ma- All right, are they are, are the government firms now in cahoots with the in cahoots with the, with the RSF? The RSF is the government. <laughs> it's the, that you need to work with that. That's that. Was the, what it is. I mean, the RSF leader is the youngest vice president in Sudan's history. And his brother has, has, has now a function that is completely unclear what it is. He's a politician, he's a mediator, he's a security official, he can arrest people, he can release people, he can negotiate, he, he sort of, he, there is no limit to what he can do. So it, I, think, I think that's important to think about without having really any official position. His official position is that he's the deputy commander of the RSF. But in that capacity, he meets diplomats, he does deals, he talks to politicians, he arrests people, he releases people, he has command over the, the, the intelligence services and can and can put people in detention in the in a big campus that belongs to the intelligence service. He's not intelligence service, he's RSF. So these distinctions um, they might be useful if you are writing a report for the UN, but in real life, they're not any use.
0: Okay, I'm going to move on to Mazan uh, so she can have her, the final say. So it's, I'm going to ask you the question about protests going on all and all the time. Can there be a pragmatic coalition to take Sudan forward? Such a hard question. Go for
3: well um honestly the answer is no and that's the the point of the the protests uh, not to let things get uh co-opted into a coalition that is short or mid-term without answering the main demands and because without answering the main demands all you do is that you delay the battle and uh, for the time during which is postponed or delayed people die out of uh, uh, militia do militia violence out of economic policies people die hence um the answer the answer that the resistance committees are working towards is a setup that actually fulfills those demands, not a coalition that can keep everybody or can keep. Can keep people some of them happy and some of them just ignored their demands um, ignored this might happen. And um, the other way that it can, um, that we can move forward to some extent is that instead of it happening, we will see a lot of oppression. We will see a lot of violence. That's what we saw, that's what ended uh, the city, um, a massacre for which um, the, 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 the military and the militias were rewarded with the government. Um, so uh, we will see uh, something similar um, unless the, uh, Unless, honestly, we stop being um, uh, oppressed both by the military and counter-revolutionary international mediators, um, mediators, basically. So yeah, that's it.
0: OK, thank you very much. So I, the one thing I've learned from this panel, well, I've learned many things from this panel, but Nafisa, I take off my hat to journalists that they can cover so much and so little of time. We academics, we need hours and hours <laughs> to cover things, but I thank all of the panelists for all of their contributions. I've definitely had a lot to think about after this session. And I want to thank all of the attendees and the people who asked questions. I think we're going to have to have another panel for <laughs> time so that we can kind of get to the, the heart of so many of these issues. But thank you everybody for coming and thank you to the panelists so much. It's been a real delight. Thank you. Thank you.